Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. All right, I'm going to say Smart Will, not my favorite, oh. but darn tough, really? man. Oh, darn tough. I'm a hard walker. I, I respect. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I'm not surprised. I'm a hard, I'm a hard walker. <laughs> I'm a hard walker, and I, and I have big feet. <laughs> this is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sheila Kim Parker, co-founder of Thrilling. Joining me as always from New York City is Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Sheila. It's just you and me. We're missing Christina, who is off on a family vacation skiing this week. Very jealous. But wishing her well. I think she's found the only patch of snow <laughs> in the world <laughs> since most folks, unfortunately because of the, our warming planet, most folks are not having good ski vacations. But she sent us pictures and she's she's got some great skiing ahead of her. So we'll look forward to seeing her back next week and pick her brain about that. <laughs> or she's um, she's at home just watching Netflix and she sent, she sent us some fake snow pictures. <laughs> she, she, she's like, she just wanted a break. I need a break. <laughs> There are a couple of pieces of news that we really should dig into. Um, first is New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill into law that would ban PFAs in clothing by December 31st of this year. Now, okay, PFAs are, and I'm going to mess this up, they're perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl, chemicals that help shield products from grease or water. They help make things basically water-resistant. Um, and it's in everything, not just clothing. I think it's really important to emphasize that, that it's in pretty much every consumer category, takeout containers, nonstick cookware, um, and then obviously clothes. Um, so this law really just addresses these chemicals in these clothes. And these chemicals have been around for a really long time, since the late 1940s. They're also called forever chemicals because they're highly mobile. They pass easily from soil to food and waterways, and they're extremely durable. They last for eight years in our bodies, and they don't biodegrade well in the environment. And in fact, these chemicals have been de detected in blood samples from over 99% of the U.S. population, which is shocking. Rachel, were you surprised by this, or, or were you expecting this regulation to come down the pike? I think I think it, it's it's been uh, top of mind for a while, um, so it doesn't come, of, come come as a surprise. These chemicals have already been banned in New York State, and um, as most recently, the the most recent ban was in food packaging in 2020. So it's been it's been a common sort of topic of conversation in terms of what chemicals should be banned. Um, and as you mentioned, they are included in a lot of treatments that make performance apparel waterproof. So they're like plastics, um, highly sort of functional for the, for the things that we expect from our clothes. And so it's, uh, it's a challenge to find a replacement for them, but they're terrible for, for human health. Um, so the state has had its eyes on them for a long time, has been banning them in other product categories. 
And the other reason I'm not surprised that it's it's now hitting fashion and it's getting banned in fashion is because the state is is very focused on fashion right now, both from a domestic labor and global sustainability impact perspective. Um, so New York is clearly establishing itself as a leader in fashion regulation in the fashion regulation space. And what's also interesting is this ties in with Biden's EPA efforts to limit harmful substances. So there's sort of like, there's support both federally and from, from state side um, for this type of legislation. And it's harmonized with California's most recent efforts to ban PFAs in clothing as well. So New York and California really continue to lead um, and push the envelope on environmental and labor legislation in our space. And I, to note, the EU is having its own parallel uh, legislative battles in trying to eliminate uh, PFAs um, from not only clothing, but a plethora of industries that use them. On the heels uh, of a ban of PFAs in five EU member states, it was recently reported that disagreements as to their true environmental impact may stall their EU Green Deal and even their energy plan. Um, since these chemicals are used in air conditioners and machines that need refrigerants, so there's a lot of argument about um, how bad they are and what they should be banned from. I'm really looking forward to um, Alden Wicker. Um, she's a journalist. Um, uh, she focuses on the topic of fashion and sustainability. She has a forthcoming book, and she's been talking about PFAs for a while. Her, her forthcoming book, it's on pre-order now. It's called To Die For. It's about how toxic chemicals used in fashion are making us sick. And she's been calling out the dangers of PFAs and other toxic chemicals for a long while. And I'm sure she'll have a lot of interesting and, and entertaining things to say. The other piece of news we should talk about, um, Amazon has been in the news again um, for a topic that we constantly talk about, which is greenwashing. Amazon who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which is greenwashing. So The Telegraph, which is a UK publication, has called Amazon's Aware Collection, which is Amazon's supposedly more sustainably produced line of apparel, home, and beauty products. They've called them, quote, greenwashing on a grotesque scale, unquote. So I guess this publication, they ordered 20 of the lines, 103 products, and 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 they said every item but two arrived wrapped in single-use plastic. They were delivered in large boxes filled with ex excess brown paper. And they called out that all but one of the products hailed from um, far-flung countries such as Pakistan and Vietnam and calling out the amount of fuel it cost to ship it to get to them. So what's interesting here is that the Telegraph is not calling out the products themselves necessarily or what they're made out of. They're really calling out the packaging and the shipping requirements, which I thought was really interesting. Amazon's response to this was, quote, the packaging is made of 80% post-consumer recycled material and everything in the line is verified carbon neutral using high quality offset credits. How, what's your reaction, Rachel, when you hear those words, post-consumer recycled material and offset credits? I think that as 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 it always is, it's, it's just like complicated because single-use packaging, whether it's recycled or not, um, it, it is is not great. In a perfect system, it would wind up recycled over and over, but it doesn't. There's almost always uh, mostly leakage that's burned or landfilled or ends up in our waterways. Um, but packaging overall, um, you know, I clicked on this article expecting it to be more about the products. So when it was just about packaging, I was like, ah, yeah, that's the problem in the system. It's not just an Amazon problem. And I'll get more into that a little after I talk about why it's it's such a systemic challenge. Um, it's 
the easiest and cheapest way to protect products. Um, and it's been the way that we've protected products as we've um, shipped them around the world because uh, of, of it, sort of our, our global supply chain um, to this point. And since Amazon is essentially drop ship, it would be an enormous lift to control all the suppliers uh, and mandate that they not um, use these traditional methods to ship their products to us. And we've avoided the optics of it before we shopped online by shopping in store, where a lot of times these the outer single single use poly that would wrap a product would be thrown away before it was put on a shelf. Um, so so this isn't just an Amazon problem, but it is because of their size, right? If that makes sense. So now that we shop online, we're getting these packages not only in the 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 poly wrapper that wraps the product, but another wrapper and things to protect the products from banging around. And it's it's really alarming. And I mean, packaging actually might be the most, the least environmental impact of a product, but it's the mascot for systemic hypocrisy. <laughs> and it causes distrust concerning sustainability claims regarding the product, product it holds, right? So it just looks like crap. And um, on to offsets. <laughs> I wait, I'm writing down the mascot for systemic <laughs> hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Wow, what yeah. a phrase. Single okay. use. <laughs> <laughs> do you want a t-shirt? I do, actually. <laughs> yeah, so, but uh, okay, so on to offsets. So so packaging is a big problem. Amazon's got a big problem. It looks bad. It's not going to be fixed anytime soon. Th- they should decrease the size of those boxes, though, I have to say. Sorry, that's the one thing. <laughs> I mean, when I get, do that. <laughs> right? Isn't it ridiculous? It's wild. I'll order a pencil, and it'll come in, like, a TV-sized <laughs> box. It's crazy. And not always, but just, like, sometimes. It's, so it's, like, I don't know what the system yeah. is. But on to offsets. Okay, so the mechanics and technicalities of the offset, offset industry are way above my pay grade, but overall, <laughs> from smarter from from smarter people I've listened to, uh, the trending sentiment is that at best they kick the can down the road, and mm. at worst they are a way for corporations to buy their way out of their environmental responsibilities mm-hmm. without actually changing an ever growing and ever compounding negative sort of externality. So that's what I have to say about offsets. So it doesn't end for them on that note. Amazon's also facing pressure from their shareholders, which is actually not new for them. They, they frequently face pressure from their shareholders. But two of Amazon's shareholders, Amalgamated Bank and Green Century Capital Management, they filed a resolution urging Amazon to measure and disclose the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions generated from their entire value chain, including third-party vendors. That would be massive, obviously, if... Amazon did that, you know, um, if you happen to be an Amazon shareholder, uh, that vote is happening in May, so please do vote. Um, What is that, like a 2080 goal? I mean, I I don't know how they do that. It's like, not to say they shouldn't be pressured to do that, but I just don't know how. Like, they've created a system such that I don't know how that would be possible. Interesting. So you think it's not feasible? Mm, Not without a lot of uh, inaccurate uh, reporting. And so, and not meaningful to even set it as a target, no matter how far in the future it is? I think you need to set those targets. It's kind of like that chicken or the egg. You need to set those targets. You need to apply the pressure. It needs to be a goal. I just don't, I, I don't, I don't know how, how it could happen. Because they sell so many different categories of products. We're not just talking about the fashion industry. We're talking about like every industry. 
beauty, Hmm. like appliances, electronics. And you'd have to get the whole, I feel that you would have to get the whole globe on board on a single measurement uh, tool for this. And I, I, I don't know, but like amalgamated, like good on them, good on their shareholders for making these making this request. Um, if anyone should do it, it should be Amazon. Right. But are you, are, are you skeptical about, I guess, that kind of measurement and transparency across all companies or is it specific to Amazon? Is your skepticism specific? specific well, my skepticism is specific to any company that is, uh, whose, whose value is based on the price. Of the goods. Mm. I mean, not that that there, of course, there's convenience and there's, um, in a lot of ways, Amazon is a great product. It's, it's consumer friendly and it's got incredible logistics and it's convenient. But all in all, I think it's the cheapest. That is going to be very challenging because uh, how, how do you require companies to do that and remain price competitive? Right. So, the, the, so basically, the existential question of, uh, Value-oriented yep. consumer products. All right, they got a lot of work ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this week we have a very special guest and someone we've been looking forward to talking to for months. Tamar Haspel is an author and journalist who has built a career around understanding health, nutrition, our systems of food and agriculture, and what all of that means with regard to climate. And she's one of the hosts of our sister podcast here at Postscript called Climavores. Please take a listen if you haven't already. It's terrific. A weekly show about how our relationship with food must evolve in the face of the climate crisis. So the issues facing the food industry are often remarkably similar to those facing the fashion industry. Is it possible to produce more, support population growth while minimizing emissions and improving the use of land and water? How do we as consumers evaluate claims of carbon neutrality, organic versus conventional or GMO? How do you treat workers fairly? How do we waste less and embrace circularity? It's kind of amazing how similar these questions are in both industries. We are so happy to have you join us. Welcome, Tamar. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here on my sister podcast. <laughs> in the closet. Uh, in the closet. Yeah. It's yeah. I I've I've podcasted from a long like series of closets. I should write a book, Closets <laughs> I Have Known. Podcasting from closets. <laughs> I am the master. See, I feel better now because usually I get grief for podcasting from the basement, but here you are from the closet. Oh man. I'm technically in a closet, too, basically. (laughs) It's actually the best place. Well, I'm in this empty apartment that echoes, and this is, like, the best place I have. So, Tamar, um, I know you from Twitter, from the Climavores podcast. I know you're a prolific writer and um, esteemed sort of thought leader in the the food and and environmental space. Um, But can you tell us about sort of how you arrived here? How did you arrive at writing about the topic and tell us about your recent work and and how you arrived there. Well, you you would totally get some pushback on the esteemed part in, <laughs> in some corners no. of, of of my world. But basically, I kind of I kind of fell into writing about food um back in the early 90s. I I did a newsletter with my mother I, this was back when when low fat was all the rage, and and we did this newsletter called gave us all eating disorders. <laughs> we did this newsletter called uh, "Dreaded Broccoli: Enjoying the Food You Know You Should Eat," and uh, <laughs> and that became a book. 
And after I wrote the book, it opened freelance doors for me. And then I wrote about, man, I wrote about nutrition for women's magazines for for a long time. And then uh, in 2008, uh, my husband and I moved to Cape Cod and I started looking around to do things that I could do on Cape Cod that I couldn't do in Manhattan where we where we had lived. And there were so many opportunities to get my hands dirty. And so I started growing food, having livestock, learning to fish, learning to hunt. And that got me really interested in the provenance of food, where it came from. So I wrote a charming, funny book that all of your listeners are going to want to buy called To Boldly Grow uh, about Uh, basically dinner and the secret to successful self-improvement. And I started writing about agriculture. And so I, uh, I have a column in the Washington Post where I write about both human nutrition and agriculture. And of course, that led to uh, Mike Grunewald and I uh, launching Climavores about the climate impact of food. So I've sort of tackled it from every angle over the years. So we're so excited to have you here, Tamar, um, and we've got so much to go through. But, you know, I thought we'd start with one of the most obvious ways our world interacts, fashion and food, is via leather. Um, there's clear agricultural and, and fashion and climate implications tied up in all sorts of leathers and furs. But I want to zero in on one of the hottest segments, which is the cattle industry, in particular cows. And before we get to the leather of it all, can you just set the stage for us about why are cows and cow products such a, I'm embarrassed to say this, hot pun, such button. a hot button. Yes, <laughs> exactly. See, <laughs> you're meant to be on this podcast. And maybe you can start with the scale of industry and how important is it to Americans? And then maybe we'll get to those cow farts and burps. Yeah, well, we eat an awful lot of beef. And the problem is that even though Americans have not been increasing their beef consumption, um, basically back in the 70s, beef consumption started to fall in the United States to be replaced by chicken and pork, um, mostly because the price of chicken and pork uh, got lower and the price of beef did not. But globally, as people get lifted out of poverty, which is unequivocally a good thing, um, they tend to eat more meat and more beef. So globally, beef consumption is still ticking up. And so there's basically two problems with cattle from a climate perspective. One of them we're going to get right to those burps and farts. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that is that uh, cows are ruminants and they eat grass. And as a byproduct of their digestion, they burp and to some extent fart methane. And methane, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you and all your listeners know, is a potent greenhouse gas. And People are looking for ways to give cows feed additives so they burp less methane. And, Mm. you know, we at Climavores, my co-host Mike Grunewald and I are watching those really carefully. Um, But for the time being, cows are just methane machines. Mm. And the other problem is that cows need a lot of land. They graze. And even in the United States, where cattle are finished in feedlots, that means that they spend their last few months there, they spend most of their life on grass. And you need a lot of grass, a lot of land, and the more cows you have, the more land you need. 
And that land, both for the grazing and for the feed, is increasingly coming from land that is deforested. And so that's, you know, as, you know, you probably deal with this because you deal with natural fibers. One of the worst things you can do from a climate perspective is cut down trees. And so between the deforestation and the methane, cattle, beef is the worst food for climate going by like even an order of magnitude, even over chicken. So it is a seriously bad climate problem and there's no way around it. And people like beef and I like beef and people like the idea of cattle grazing on hillsides. And I like that too. And, you know, part of the problem, I think, is that you can't see the methane and you can't see the deforestation because in the United States, our deforestation happened a long time ago. So now the deforestation is happening elsewhere. And people say, well, I just buy beef from the guy down the street who raises it here in North Dakota or whatever. Um, but it's it's a fungible global commodity. And, you know, every steak you eat contributes to the global beef demand. And every steak you don't eat cuts it by a steak. And that, in turn, cuts deforestation. So it's not a direct link, but it's pretty direct. So that's the problem with cattle. Are you saying, Tamar, beef is uh, the equivalent to fast fashion? <laughs> I'd need to know a lot more about fast fashion. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Everything you said, you could almost replace the word beef for fast fashion. Um, because like shine is shine fast fashion. This I'm betraying my ignorance. Yes, it is fast fashion and H&M. It's all those clothes that look really pretty. And then when you wear them, you're like, what is this? And then you wash them and they fall apart. And they're we're like, for a pair of jeans. I have some personal experience with fast fashion. (laughs) Well, we all do. That's the thing. And it's like, it's kind of what we grew up on. You know, it's like, it's been around for not that long, but a while. And I'm too old to have grown up on fast fashion, I'm afraid. (laughs) Well, you know, you don't have to tell our listeners that. Yeah. Okay. So I won't pull out the, you know, I'm old enough to be your mother line. You could do that. Christina does that. Okay. (laughs) I might. (laughs) If circumstances warrant. (laughs) Well, no. Okay. So for for real, the reason I say that is because the impacts are um, displaced and out of, displaced from us here in the West, out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. the appetite literally for for beef and fast fashion increases as economies grow uh, mature and the just all the problems around um, land use and ancillary consequences that we're trying to do fancy footwork to solve like you mentioned feed additives to limit methane um, all sort of seem like we're watching them very carefully because it just seems like a way to do business as usual. And so ultimately, like, it comes down to that fundamental question of how do you get people to want and purchase and eat less beef? The same with fast fashion. That is such an important question. And people are really struggling with it because consumers are notoriously slow to change their eating habits. And, you know, you talk about fast fashion, and we even have this thing called fast food that, and again, it's cheap, it's convenient, um, it's tasty. And people buy a Whopper for probably the same reason they buy that you know, cute little blouse that f- came through their Twitter feed. To 
pick an example at random. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's really hard to wean people away from this because there's a reason people buy that stuff. They want it. They can afford it. It scratches an itch for them. And it's really hard, even I think for those of us who, who are knee deep in this stuff, to change our habits based on these sort of existential questions. And, you know, my co-host, Mike, just recently said he was going to stop eating beef. And it was a really hard thing for him. And he's like the the number one, you know, beef is bad guy, like, that I can think of. So yeah, it's, these are hard habits to change for all of us. So st- sticking on this topic for a second, what are the levers, because we talk about this a lot in terms of fashion, what are the levers that you and Mike get most excited about in terms of potential impacts? Is it just the introduction of really attractive, competitive products that are made of alternative ingredients? Is it other policy levers? What what, what do you guys get most excited about? That's such a great question. And And for the most part, um, there are a lot of things, each of which has some potential to change things rather than, you know, a couple of things that have large potential to change things. And what you said, yeah, the plant-based meats, I think, are do have the potential to change things, but it's going to take time, first of all, because they're not there taste-wise, they're not there price-wise, they're not there acceptance-wise, which has to do, of course, with taste and price. But eventually, I suspect we will have plant-based meats making some inroads into the ground beef market. I think the whole muscle uh, market is going to be a little bit harder. In fact, it's going to be a lot harder. But we're also excited about some of the technology that is uh, that is being worked on. And, you know, feed additives really can uh, reduce methane to some extent. Now, to what extent and how difficult is that to implement? Um, you know, those questions are open. Uh, we're In dairies, we're seeing methane digesters uh, come in so that the manure gets turned into energy rather than greenhouse gases. Um on farms where the feed is grown, there are precision ag techniques that are going to prevent nutrient runoff and prevent prevent more of that nitrogen from going into water, preventing more of the nitrous oxide into the air. And so I absolutely hate the silver buckshot metaphor. <laughs> I don't know that metaphor. Me neither. What is that metaphor? Oh, so it's like, you know, a silver bullet is like when one thing is going to solve the yep. problem. Silver buckshot is when lots of little things solve the ah. problem. And yeah, it's an ammunition joke. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some of the things that, that that we're excited about. And we keep watching. There's so much technology out, out there that, that, that people are working on. But again, there, there's kind of a basic problem with a technological solution to a food problem because the people who care about food and food systems have sort of been primed and are also just basically inclined to associate a better food system with a more natural food system. And so sometimes technological um, solutions are a tough sell because you know, technology has been used in some in, in some ways without without sufficient regard for its environmental impact, and that's given technology kind of a bad name in some agricultural sectors. But we are 
we're, Mike and I are optimists. I'm an optimist. And, and I hope that some of these, both technological and, uh, and they're also back to nature solutions about regenerative agriculture. And although I hate that word mm. and we should probably talk about yeah. that, but, <laughs> yeah. but there's a whole smorgasbord of possibilities, some of which will pan out and some of which obviously won't. I wanted to turn to leather then, Tamar. So I'm curious from your perspective um, how it's discussed in the beef industry and I assume also dairy. um, (laughs) But um, is it considered from your point of view or from the industry's point of view as a byproduct? Because some some folks in, um, in fashion, I think, make the justification of buying leather that it's a waste byproduct of the beef and dairy industry. Um, And I'm just curious to the extent, is that really true? Yeah, Um, it is true. Okay. However, and, you know, we can say the same thing about wool and sheep, that, yes, they are byproducts, but what makes cattle ranching and sheep farming viable is the sum total of what the ranchers and farmers can get for all of the products. That's right. And if people stop buying the wool or the leather and, you know, the price plummets. The economics um, don't work. Then the economics are a little bit different. And, you know, it's in some ways it's a hard argument to really swallow whole because the leather and, I mean, the meat drives the cattle and the sheep and the leather and the wool are there. We certainly don't want them to go to waste. That would be the worst thing that could happen to them. And so I don't see my way clear to uh, 100% pro or anti-leather or wool in either case. You know, I've seen arguments that um, leather should should not be considered a byproduct, that should be considered a co-product, because the size of the leather industry at this point is almost similar from the studies that I've seen online um, to the size of the uh, beef and dairy industry, um, wildly varying figures, but in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and so um, to your point, at this point, it's so intermingled, the economics are so intertwined. Um, and maybe it's the same argument for if, if one person stopped eating beef and the impact that might have, if we stop buying leather, that it might it might have um, produced similar results, and there might be a similar um, train of thought. And you know, cattle ranching because becomes just a little bit less viable. That's right. And maybe we start reducing the herds, and maybe also if the price of leather goes down, that could drive the price of beef up. And increased prices is one of the few things that does get people to change their habits. I was going to ask Rachel, how you, how, what's your point of view around leather? Because I know there are other climate impacts around leather in terms of the tanning and it's toxic. How do you yeah. feel about leather? Yeah. So there's certainly, I mean, it's a whole area of expertise. Um, that, and, and I certainly don't know the full landscape of, you know, leather tanning and leather processing and, and the climate impacts of that. I know they are enormous. They're just like anything, there are better ways to tan and and um, treat leather than others. But the traditional way and the the way we do it at scale uh, overall is really um, harmful to human health and uh, harmful to ecosystems. I don't really, it's one of those things like fast fashion, not to bring it back to that, but it's almost like we just shouldn't be so involved with it at all. 
I think that's the major sort of top line takeaway for me is we should eat less beef. And this is coming from somebody who eats, I eat beef. Um, I also buy leather, um, but in small, small amounts that I plan to use for a long time and resell them and keep them in circulation. Uh, I prefer it, and it's a personal preference over, uh, and then we'll talk about this, over over leather substitutes for lots of reasons, and preferably used. But the, uh, yeah, leather, pro- I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the documentaries done about, um, I think, True Cost um, and, and some of the other sort of more notable documentaries around fashion production and its climate impacts globally have segments on what leather tanneries look like. And these are children in bare feet, in chemicals. Uh, These are entire communities that have very limited lifespans um, because of uh, their direct contact with the chemicals that uh, are used to treat leather. Leather tanning was not always like that. Um, There was a very sort of symbiotic relationship between farms and and leather tanners and and the way things were done. It was a very slow process. It was was a safer process. Didn't they use the brains to tan the hides? Yeah. Yeah. If you see any, I I saw sort of a, have you ever seen Victorian Farm, Tamar? Oh, God, I love Victorian Farm. <laughs> okay, my dad got me into it. He tried for years. I finally watched I it. What we is binge that? Watched. Oh, my God, Shilla. <laughs> if you like Real Housewives, you'll like Victorian Farms. I'm serious. Really? Yes. So, so Rachel, I wrote a whole book about, like, growing your own food and, and yeah. foraging and fishing and hunting. And, it, it like, Victorian Farms spoke to me <laughs> so much. And the woman on that show was kick-ass. What's her name again? I wish I knew her name. <laughs> She's she an icon. So, so this is a show about a family that farms? So it's about, uh, they recreate, basically, the conditions um, in the Victorian era, which, of course, ended in, when did Victoria die? 1901. And so it was the the second half of the 1800s. And so, you know, they didn't, they, they used horses, although they used, they had tractors at the very end. They had, like, yeah. primitive tractors coming in. And, you know, they didn't have refrigeration, and they were preserving things with, you know, salting and drying and uh, and different kinds of canning. Wow. Um, and it was, and yeah. It's and an experiment whole, or was it was a family who decided to do it or a It's a reenactment, town? but for real. Mm-hmm. Like they're living It was like for this. real. They lived they're like, it. Wow. In this year, we would have to do this to grow these crops, to be able to fish this way, to be able to survive this way for like months on end. There's like three, it's two guys and this woman who's an icon and we can't remember her name. But, we can't remember her name and we're embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, we're embarrassed. And it's amazing and it's it's nail biting, it's enthralling. What? It's, it's just it's everything. Awesome. <laughs> okay. And there's a whole segment on leather tanning, which is phenomenal. Although they also do a segment on uh, like uh, fiber spinning and everybody went deaf from the machines and that was terrifying. And I mean, you can see how things used to be done in a way that profoundly brings you back to sort of like the ecosystems that actually sort of were sustainable because they had to be. They were just working with what they had and now I, I don't like. Yeah, it's great. And like you watch it and you're like, oh my God, that's got listeria written all over it. <laughs> Those Victor- and other Victorian era diseases. <laughs> exactly. But oh, it's a, it's a great show. It's a great show. But we digress. Yeah. We, sorry, I, that was not planned, but God, so glad we did it. 
Um, so it's so funny. I was looking on PETA's website, and they said, um, what's so great about vegan leather? And their answer was, only everything. And it's so funny mm. because, and I know Rachel's going to have a lot of opinions here, but um, don't you think vegan leather, Rachel, was the best marketing feat um, in a long time? Oil spill leather, which I have like rebranded. Yeah. Uh, okay. to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think oil spill leather was is more the accurate. fact that it's not called that is 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 impressive of itself. It took like right. ten years for people to be like, wait a second, same with <laughs> vegan fur. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, so so most alternative leathers are made out of plastic, which I think most people don't realize. Yeah, and even plant based alternative leathers. Many incorporate that. Yeah, many plant-based leathers, while from a net perspective, meaning like a net carbon and emissions and probably chemicals perspective, they may be a little bit better. Pineapple leather, some mycelium leather, most incorporate some mixture of poly into them or or fossil fuel-based materials to, to bind and make them functional. So, it's it's interesting when you like do like an LCA about uh, of them. They're like profoundly better for for the planet, but they're not like I don't know about their durability. It's still pl- right. it's like going back to plastics. It's not right. a byproduct, so it's like right. yeah. So what I've I've seen estimates of this market at of alternative leather market at thirty to sixty billion dollars, anywhere ranging within that range. At, but the vast majority of that is plastic, pure plastic alternative to leather. Um, and I think plant-based is, is still pretty small in the hundreds of millions of dollars um, a year. And Rachel, you mentioned it, but I, the, the plant-based alternatives I've seen are the pineapple, which you said, um, cactus, mushroom, um, or mycelium, um, which is how most people might, might have heard of it. Um, and to your point, the problem is that um, they don't have the durability. Leather is great because it's so durable. And in order to recreate that durability, a lot of times folks are, are incorporating plastics, although they're not being super transparent about, they, they, I've seen some um, producers of plant-based, plas- uh, plant-based leathers talk about a secret ingredients that they incorporate into the material to it's improve plastic. its color. <laughs> <laughs> what did you whisper, Rachel? It's plastic. <laughs> it's plastic, right? Exactly, and so it's it's not actually really transparent to the consumer what's in the plant based leather, and most likely it is probably plastic to kind of Im- imitate um, the durability and feel of leather. So my my co host who has a really uncanny knack for irritating people. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought Me it was my long suit, but Mike is like he's a pro, and he points out that. Plastics, obviously, they are a problem from a pollution standpoint, but plastic pollution is just another way of sequestering carbon because it doesn't break down. Interesting. And <laughs> let's say it's a really bad way because it has all these other effects, but if you're doing from a pure climate impact, hmm. um, if you have a, a product that doesn't biodegrade, right. um, nothing <laughs> goes back into the atmosphere. And I have to say, from a pure consumer standpoint, clothes that biodegrade are a little bit alarming. <laughs> because who decides when that process starts? He's not really pro-plastic, but he does point out that those fossil fuels are not going back into the atmosphere. That is a really fair point that I have never considered before. 
We just have to find, get them back and put them all in one room right, forever and really ever. really big room. And then we'll be fine. And that's what we're trying to right. do with recycling. I, yeah, why can't we build buildings out of them, you know? It's like, well, we can. It's just the leakage, you know? It's like anything could be done. It's just like only 7 to 9% can get recaptured. Look, if I had to do it all over again right now, I think I'd become a materials scientist mm. because I think some of this stuff is really cool how they're repurposing some things to become other things. And like mushroom leather is like, wow. It's also the economic opportunity because we're not going back to Victorian farms. So we're going to have to we're going to have to come up with a very new set of solutions. I mean, go back to go back to the beginning but also like new solutions to your point. I want to chat a little bit about um sheep and wool. Um now this industry and Tamar correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's been shrinking in size for decades, but it's still fairly significant um because yeah. I think I believe demand for lamb and uh, for lamb and mutton has decreased over time. But still, obviously, a sizable industry, and and many folks believe wool is a true sustainable material. And so, I, I really would love to kind of dig into it a little bit. Um, how do you think about from your from your work and your point of view? How do you think about this industry? So, so wool is is funny because I, I I learned this recently that. Uh, wool had government support. It still has a little bit of government support, but it used to have a lot of government support because it was necessary for the military. And so I, that, I thought that was pretty cool. And so it used to be that wool was one of the primary reasons that people raised sheep. But at this point, wool is a genuine byproduct. I mean, on-farm receipts from sheep farmers are something like half a billion and uh, only like single digit, eight, ten percent of that is wool, um, and the rest of it is meat. So wool is um, is definitely a byproduct. But you know the same arguments apply. That okay is this as this becomes the the entire enterprise of sheep farming um, becomes less viable, then we get less sheep. Now, sheep are not as bad as cows for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're better feed converters than cattle. And so their methane, they don't burp nearly as much methane as cattle do on a per pound of sheep basis. And, uh, and they also can, uh, can graze on much more rugged marginal uh, land and they can be used to clear underbrush and things like that, which cattle can't really do. They need grass, they need pasture um, and goats as well. And so sheep have probably, the, the estimates I've seen, sheep have about 40% of the impact of beef. So lamb has 40% of the impact of beef um, on a per kilogram basis. But again, demand for lamb in the United States is minuscule. And of course, some of the, uh, the big thing is deforestation. And if we shifted all of our demand to sheep away from cattle, then we'd be deforesting for the sheep instead of the cattle. So that's a function of just not eating very much of it. But, um, but yeah, so sheep are definitely a better choice than lamb. And I, by extension, wool is probably a better choice than leather. But I'm totally biased because I love wool. <laughs> don't tell me I can't have don't take, wool. Don't take Tamar's wool away, folks. So is it true, Tamar? I, I had always heard that sheep, even though their methane emissions are not as voluminous as the cows, they require a lot more land per bale. 
of of material. So that that's where kind of some of the trade-offs come in, come into play. So bale of wool versus bale of uh, oh, sorry, this is of this, leather. Sorry, this isn't ta- this is talking about cotton now. Um, so I apologize for for switching. Okay, you have just wandered outside my area of expertise. <laughs> I'm just like a bad animal. <laughs> I need a I need a herding dog to keep me <laughs> to keep me um, in the on the right topic. No, it, it, so yeah, no, I don't know uh, about uh, the the wool and cotton comparison because you can't eat either one of them, mm-hmm, and that's right. Food is is kind of my yep. thing, but I would be interested in knowing that. You know, I think it gets dicey comparing the two because again, wool is a byproduct and cotton is a primary product, and and so. Uh, you know, the question of using land to grow clothing is is a hard one because we have land in, in limited supply and we have 8 billion people to feed. Right. But the question is, what's the alternative? And, um, and that's kind of where I look to you guys to tell me what the alternatives are. Are there good alternatives that don't come from sheep or, or cotton? Well, actually, that leads me to a question I wanted to ask about one of the favorite rants I ever heard you do, which was uh, calories per acre and corn. It was riveting to me. Was and it really? First, oh, my God. I loved Most it. Most people turn the channel I reposted when I get to it. That. Yes. No, no, no. The, the calorie, <laughs> you're, you're like one woman uh, army about calories per acre and corn. I was just like, this is just the content we all need. Um, First of all, I'd love you to share it. Um, And second of all, I I guess it made me think about hemp. There are so many functions for, and and bear with me, everyone will understand once they hear your corn rant, which I want to give you the floor for. Um, With hemp, there are so many functions for this crop, from building materials to apparel to food. So I would say hemp is the calories plus clothes per acre crop. And, I and love other things that. that, that uh, calories plus clothes. So I don't know, in, in the U.S., uh, it, it, the U.S. is one of the largest cotton exporters. So it would be very, it's going to be a very big uphill battle to go back to hemp. We started with hemp and then turned into cotton, like, you know, uh, the origins of our country. We produce tons of hemp and then uh, we've become one of the largest cotton exporters. And, and there's kind of battles going on to reintroduce hemp into one of the crops that we produce. And there's no reason it shouldn't be besides probably lobbying. Will we ever go back to hemp and subsidize it in the ways that we could or should is basically my ca- my question. And I also want to hear your corn rant. Holy moly. You know, I am not in the game of predicting what our politicians will and won't do because it's just brutal. I used to think I had some basic understanding of how politics works, but the last six years sort of gave the lie to that. And I'm like, no, I just don't flat out understand how these people are operating. (laughs) Um, But I'll give you the, the, the calories per acre thing. Is it? Yeah. You know, it's so hard to get your arms around the global effort to feed 8 billion people. And this is one of the ways that I try and do it. That, that okay, we have 8 billion people and each one of us needs about a million calories a year, give or take. And we each of us, if you divide all the farmland, we each have about a third of an acre. If we divide all the farmland by all the people, that's what we get. 
And uh, so you got to grow at least 3 million acres, and that's if you don't waste anything. And there are other, there, some of the food goes into feed, and that goes into grazing animals, so it's not a perfect comparison. But basically, that illustrates the need to get as, mo- as, as much food as you can off of each acre of land. And of course, you need other things too. You need nutrients, you need protein. But, but, but calories is something that every crop has, and it's a great way to compare how sort of productive each crop is. And corn is king. And we've sort of gotten, you know, the idea that corn is a bad thing because it gets used. I mean, it's put in cars and pigs and Twinkies and not, you know, tortillas and polenta and grits. And and so um, so it's gotten a bad rap. But corn can produce about 15 million calories per acre. And that's a lot of calories. And it's also, if we ate it as polenta, it's an extremely nutritious food. Um, Soy is the most productive legume. And because um, it's a protein-producing crop, and protein has a high overhead for plants. So a plant that produces a reasonable amount of protein is going to produce fewer calories overall. And soy rolls in at about 6 million calories per acre. Potatoes are up there with corn, 15 million calories per acre. Some of the other legume crops, beans, chickpeas, are in the, you know, two to three million. But then you go down to vegetables and you're in like the two million calories per acre, which is why I am anti-lettuce because, <laughs> yeah, it is just an excuse to ship refrigerated water from farm to table. I love it. And My kids would love this. I mean, I like eating lettuce. I occasionally have lettuce. Having a salad on the table is a nice thing. I think it's good um, to eat. And sometimes it keeps me out of the lasagna. So uh, it's it's all good, except for from a climate perspective. So when we think about using our precious agricultural acres to feed people, one of the things we have to think about is trying to maximize the the amount of food we can produce on each acre. And, you know, starchy staples get a bad rap. But if you look at the nutrition produced per acre in crops like potatoes and corn, it's way bigger than broccoli just because you're growing so much more food. You're getting nutrition and calories, whereas with vegetables, you're getting nutrition basically without calories. And in uh, in a, in an overabundant, rich world like the one we live in, where obesity is a public health problem, nutrition without calories sounds really good. But if you're trying to feed 8 billion people, most of whom are poor, that's not good at all. That's fascinating. I mean, what a incredible lens in thinking about food in the way that I feel like most of us um, who are privileged, we're all privileged, we don't think of food in that way. What incredible perspective. So you're going to join my calories per acre crusade? Hey, any reason to give up lettuce, I'm I'm on board. (laughs) (laughs) Pork is the best meat going, by the way. Is it? From a climate perspective. Really? Well, okay, people will tell you that chicken, from a sheer climate perspective, chicken is the best meat going. But uh, the thing about pigs is, number one, they taste better than chickens (laughs) and you get bacon. But also, um, you get much more meat per life taken. And I think that matters. Wow. And of course, I have huge problems with, with the way pigs are raised in this country. And I, I don't buy conventional pork. But a well-raised pig 
can yield a huge amount of meat in a very efficient way that is totally delicious. So I actually think that we should turn our attention to raising pigs the right way and switching our beef demand to pork. And then then we can have this conversation about pigskin because there's got to be good uses besides footballs. Right, right, exactly right. Frying it is pretty good. So tell us about so regenerative agriculture, which has become a buzzword. Ag. Can you can you just explain what does that mean? Nothing. Oh. It doesn't mean anything. Okay. It means whatever people want it to mean, which is why it annoys it the crap so out of me. It sounds so good tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it doesn't. It does. It's very it, comforting, yeah. like a blanket. I'm old enough to remember when they used to call this agroecological farming because Basically, it just means farming with attention to environmental impact. And, you know, people have all these different definitions of regenerative, and usually it is taken to mean actually like increasing soil organic matter, which increases uh, sequestered carbon in the soil. And But people use it in all kinds of ways. And, and there's a real tendency to define it as a series of practices. But one of the huge problems we're having in agriculture is that some of the practices that we think of as being regenerative don't actually turn out to have the kind of measurable uh, results that we had hoped. And, you know, there are a bunch of examples. No-till, for example. So used to be, back in the old golden days, that farmers would use these big plows to plow up an entire field before they planted, after they harvested. And uh, they would disturb, you know, a good eight inches of the soil, sometimes more. And it was discovered that when you do that, you break up basically the ecosystem of the soil and it, it loses its nutrients, it it leaches those into water. Um, it promotes soil erosion. There are problems with it. And so farmers in the Midwest started using a, a no-till system where they didn't churn up the soil every year. Instead, they did, you know, targeted planting with, with drills, and they tried to leave the soil as undisturbed as possible. And there are lots of unequivocal advantages to that. It's a good thing but it doesn't seem to sequester more carbon, at least in some areas. And and like all these practices, it's variable. So in some places you will, but in a lot of places you won't. And even things like cover crops, and a cover crop is a crop that a farmer plants in between, you know, the, the, the cash crop. So you're growing corn one year and soybeans the next year, and in the middle you plant, you know, hairy vetch or clover or, or winter rye. Uh, something to keep the ground covered, to have roots in the ground, and then you kill it back in the spring and you leave that material in the soil. And that was thought to increase carbon sequestration. But again, it's tough. Um, sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it has an impact on crop yields that is not necessarily favorable. There's something called the Hig Index, and it's come under a lot of scrutiny. It's it was it's one of the main and primary ways that we use to, like the the fashion industry at large was using to measure environmental impact. But it 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 takes overall numbers around, uh, especially it, for fiber production around environmental impact or numbers that are based on certain areas of the world. And the argument is that that's not accurate because, to your point. 
something regenerative in one area, if you're if you do it if, if you grow a cotton crop in one way in one area and that's regenerative, it might not be in another area of the world, and so you can't measure apples to apples. It's it just doesn't work. You cannot model it. You have to measure it. And this becomes even more important in agriculture as, you know, people are finding ways, trying to find ways to compensate farmers for sequestering carbon in their soils. And if this is going to work, it has to be measured. There's just no way, there's no way around it because it is, it is incredibly variable. So my problem with the definitions of regenerative is that I, I don't like the ones that define practices. I like the ones that define results. And I think it has to be a measured results-oriented um, idea. And, you know, for me, I would call it regenerative if it improves environmental outcomes without depressing yields. That's the definition that I would go with. But it, that's a very general one, and people take issue with it. And, you know, I'm not going to die on that hill, but that's kind of my my working idea about it. But lots of people want to define it by practices, and that's the road to perdition. <laughs> um, so, consumers, we should be skeptical when we hear the, that term. What advice would you give for folks as they're shopping for um, um, for their family for the week ahead, um, or um, you know, in thinking about who to vote for? What are what are some of some of the things that we should be thinking about as consumers and citizens? There are two things you can do that are unequivocal wins, and if you do these two things, you actually don't have to worry much about the other things. Number one, eat less beef, and number two, waste less food. And, you know, both of these are budget-friendly, and especially the waste part. And here in the United States, we waste about a third of all of the food that comes into our food system. And that is, as they say in the old country, a shanda. It's a real shame. And so work on that. Work on ways to recycle leftovers or to not have leftovers in the first place. Check your crisper, people. <laughs> and I had to do the walk of shame with half a bunch of cilantro this morning, and it really put a crimp in my morning. Where were you walking to with your cilantro? <laughs> the garbage disposal. Oh, I see. <laughs> now, I'm not at home right now. At home, I have a foolproof, no food waste system, which consists of a chicken coop. And anything that gets mm. a little too old for human consumption, the chickens are not fastidious about it. And so we turn it into eggs. And then, of course, if I can't do that, then I'll compost it. But uh, but here I'm down in Miami Beach and dealing with my mother's apartment, and, and I don't have those options. And so I have to be doubly careful about not wasting food. So eat less beef. Uh, waste less food, and you can feel better about yourself. Um, I will not be doing our third co-host, uh, Justice, who's off skiing right now with her family. She really wanted us to ask about organic versus GMO oh. cotton. And is that oh, a can subject? Can we say one really think, quick thing about that? Because it's important. No, I, so I, I'd love to talk about it. If you, if you feel like um, it's, we should go there. Great. We can go there really quickly. So the problem with organic is really simple. And it goes back to that whole thing about calories per acre, even though obviously we're not talking about calories. Um, and that is that organic agriculture does have some better environmental outcomes, but it comes at a price. And that is a is a uh, a decrease in yield. And so 
usually in crops, the average is about 20%. Now, my understanding in, co- in cotton is that the, the, the yield penalty is a little lower. It's probably about 15%. But for every you know 20% cut in yield, you need 25% more land to make up for it. And land is the key here, and we're trying not to deforest. And so it's really important that we don't go for systems that grow less of whatever it is we're trying to grow. And I'm pro-organic for a number of reasons. I think it's always going to be a niche, and I think there's room for it in our food system and in our fiber system, but it is not a solution for the world. That's really helpful, and I think it touches on what we often have to consider with every sustainable solution is scale, to your point about um, decreased yield and, and the requirement of more land per yield. Um, scaling um, is often uh, the dynamic in some of these sustainable solutions that we don't really consider. And, and obviously, as, as we think about organic farming, um, that is something that we really have to puzzle it's through. Super important. Super important. Man, we could go on, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure we won't. <laughs> Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me this on. I really such appreciate a blast. it. Yeah, this was such a pleasure. That's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at HotButtonsPod and now on Instagram at HotButtons.Pod. Or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to HotButtons at PostscriptAudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line. It's at 508-622-5361. So give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Sheila Kim Parker, Christina Binkley, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Ann Bailey. Our engineer is Sean Marquand. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. All right, you guys have to tell me what you ate for breakfast. <laughs> oh, um, I ate a banana and coffee. <laughs> breakfast of champions. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just needed a cigarette in there. Yeah, I know. It would have really some, rounded it out. Some sucrets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.